<clears throat> so, um, sitting here these days with you, I one of the strong feelings that I have is a lot of gratitude for all of you. And it's uh, very meaningful for me that you and people like you take a month or two months from your life uh, to engage in this very profound practice, this very profound meeting of yourself. <clears throat> and I think it's one of the beautiful things you do for yourself, but also a beautiful thing you do for others uh, to do this kind of deep work, deep encounter. To borrow from vocabulary, a word that's often referred to in Buddhism, um, I think it's a very noble thing to do, to be on retreats like this. There's a lot of nobility in taking the time out and arranging one's life and coming and doing this process. I know some of you probably don't feel noble at all today, and uh, probably thinking that you can't be talking about me because I'm just a mess. But I, talk, I, I do talk about all of you. I know how difficult it can be. And I think it's almost it's because of the difficulties that staying here, showing up here, encountering oneself, looking at those difficulties is a noble thing to do. If you came here, it was just easy. Just like in a breeze, come in here, sit down, samadhi, whew, just like that, you know. In and out of here in a couple of days, go and look. <laughs> You know, you can get on with your life. I'm sure you have important things to do. You know, then I wouldn't have so much gratitude. <laughs> or so much uh, awe and appreciation. It's, it is difficult. So the topic of today is the difficulties and in the, in the form of the hindrances. It's a topic we cover every retreat. And uh, the hindrances are kind of an umbrella topic that encompasses a wide range of experiences we have on practice. But most simply, the hindrances are those forces of the mind that make it very hard for us to be present, to be mindful. And, um, and when, we are, when we are present, they hinder our ability to be present in a wise way. And in fact, the word for hindrances in Pali Nivarana uh, means to cover, to cover over. It's a variety of things it covers, but it also it covers over our capacity to see clearly, make wise choices. Um, it covers over our capacity to be present, because we can get caught up and lost in in our concerns. In a number of places, many places, the Buddha uh, uses the analogy of water for practice for the mind. And uh, concentration practice is referred to in, in symbol, symbolisms of water. And the hindrances also uh, use the water analogy. Uh, and so if you take a pond of water, a pool, a lake of water, to be uh, troubled by the first hindrance of desire, it's like putting a dye into the lake and colors it. You don't really see the lake, see it clearly for what it is, because you see it through rose-colored glasses. So it's the effect of being caught up in desire. Ill will, which is a second hindrance, or aversion sometimes it's called, it's like having the uh, heating up the lake and the water uh, boils, roils, bubbling up, and you can't see clearly either because of all the heat. The third, sloth and torpor, is like um, uh, lots of algae growing all over the top of the lake. So not only can't you see into the lake properly, but it's just it's kind of like, it's like you can't hardly swim through it. It just kind of, you know, it just kind of bogs you down, kind of. And then um, the fourth hindrance is restlessness and anxiety. And uh, that is likened like a wind. A strong wind blows across the surface of the lake, and it's all churned up from that. So it's and the uh, fifth one, fifth hindrance, fifth, fifth of these challenges, is doubt. And doubt is like the uh, lake is full of mud. And you step into the lake and you can barely kind of take a next step because it's just so muddy and gucky and quicksandy. And maybe quicksand, more like mud. 
more like quicksand. And um, so all these analogies point to the fact we can't see clearly. The water of our mind is not clear, not pure. And part of what we do in practice is to purify that water, purify the mind. And it's a very can be at times a very powerful process of purification that goes on here in this practice. Uh, uh, to meet ourselves, to see ourselves, to try to be still, to try to be mindful, is so radically different from how many people live their normal lives that it's not just simply a, a tr- the difficulty of the transition, but it's uh, really encountering some of the deep-held habits, resistances, fears, holding patterns, um, stored up legacies of a lifetime that are just ready to kind of come forth. And they can come forth in very powerful ways that sometimes can be quite challenging. Uh, one of them that's uh, interesting to mention, I think, is that um, is, um, there's a variety of different kinds of body pains and tensions that can reveal themselves on retreat. Some of them might be structural, maybe the way you sit, and maybe it's useful to have someone check your posture. But oftentimes it has to do with holding patterns. And chronically held muscles uh, go numb. And what we want is to, the body, the mind, everything to wake up again. In the process of those uh, numb muscles waking up, becoming sensitive again, goes through a period of pain. And so the fact that you start having some pain in your muscles is not necessarily a sign that things are worse and getting terrible for you, but rather is a sign that actually it's getting better because you're beginning to wake up and you have to go through this phase of working with that challenge. That's part of the purification process of clarifying, relaxing, deepening. One of the uh, aspects of the five hindrances is they belong to the land of about, the about land. And many of you have been visiting the world of about. And uh, some of you are, you know, that's where your, basically your citizenship belongs to the tried and true, ready to defend your country at all costs, the world of about. And what that means is that um, when you're thinking about something, then you're in the world of about. If you're thinking about something and, and really living in that world and that concerns, then you're in that world of about. So if you're thinking about uh, what was for dinner today or supper, then you're not here with attention but you're, you're focusing on something that your mind is about. You're about dinner. If you're thinking about what happened last year, you think you're in the world of about. If you're thinking about what's going to happen at your next interview with a teacher, <clears throat> you're in the world of about land. If you are um, thinking about how much sleep you need, need to get or don't need to get or something, you're in the world of about land. If you're thinking about your pain, you're also thinking about something in the about land. If you're thinking about what a terrible meditator you are, or what a great meditator you are, uh, that's what it's about. You're in the world of about land. You're in that about land world. And it's possible to get pulled into that world of about land. So there's no other land. And the the land that that we're trying to inhabit on this retreat is the land of here, here land. There's here land and there's about land. And there's a huge difference between those two worlds. And one of the things about the about land is it's really great at camouflaging itself. So we go in there and we don't realize we're in there because we're just, just, it has, you know, it's just, you're, just, you're there. <laughs> There's not that kind of awareness sometimes. Or sometimes there is awareness that we're in the world of about land, but that the awareness is not that strong. Or we haven't understood the nature of that awareness that sees, oh, I'm thinking about dinner, I'm thinking about my interview. There's something very special about the awareness that knows and sees that. And what we're trying to do here in this retreat is to come back and discover what's so special about awareness, about mindfulness, presence, about here land. 
And this is not a, uh, a you know, casual thing to do. It's not just because it's an interesting land to visit, another form of Disneyland, but because uh, um, it's a path to freedom, the path to some of the most beautiful and profound and meaningful transformations a person can do in their life. And um, to overcome, as the Buddha said, uh, uh, lamentation, despair, grief, sorrow, uh, to really uh, uh, release, and the, word, the, the, the Buddhist word is really to release the heart from what keeps it shackled, keeps it in prison, keeps it tied down, keeps it hidden, keeps it afraid, um, keeps it restricted, to release the mind, the heart. Um, and it's a beautiful thing to do. And so coming into the here land is the process of doing that. Only, only in the world of here can that release really happen fully. The about land doesn't release much. Uh, the about land can be spent a lot of time thinking about how to get released, thinking about freedom, thinking about how great it's going to be, thinking about how I'm so great that I'm already free, thinking about, about myself. It's, still, it's all about about. And it's a kind of a deadening world. You spend too much time in the world of aboutness. It's not, it's not three-dimensional. It's not really where life, the lived life, is not found in about something. The lived life is found here. And so one of the things we're doing here is learning to come into the here. Now, when the Buddha gave his instructions for mindfulness practice, in the Donald referred to the, the text called The Four Foundations of Mindfulness, um, uh, as, he start, as the Buddha started to give his instructions, the first thing he said is the most important and is mostly overlooked, mostly just kind of glanced right over and no one refers to it. The first thing he said, he said, here, here. And then he started giving instructions. He said, here. And the word for here in Pali, and I'm going to teach you some Pali. You ready to learn? Ida. Isn't a great word? Ida. I think it's one of those great words like Allah, Rama, Jehovah. All end with this ah. <laughs> and imagine here being a place of ah. Ida. Ida. And sometimes when I sit and meditate, I use the word here as a note to be here. It's, I find it a very meaningful mental note because it overcomes my tendency sometimes to have my practice be about something different than it's about. <laughs> so, you know, practice is about getting concentrated. Practice is about making things different so I can have a good experience. Uh, it's about getting rid of something. So I'm kind of in that world of aboutness and I'm trying to negotiate everything. Um, but the word here, ida, and then when I say that word, I just allow the here to be as it is, or try to let it just be here as it is, and then I notice, what is it like? So if I'm agitated and my mind is wandering a lot, I say the word here, and then I say, oh, here is a, here is a mind which is agitated. Here is a mind that's wandering a lot. This is what it's like. And then usually I have to say it again pretty quickly. Here. Here, this is what it's like. This is what it's like. And one of the things I encounter in that, this is what it's like, is the forces of the mind, the thoughts and everything, that are involved in aboutness, or about trying to change things, or wanting things different, or leaning forward, or all the things that, uh, that Heather talked about, the mind get caught up and, and trying to make things different than how they are be caught up in making, wanting things to be different, to be caught in that is painful. And I find there's something very profound about settling back into here and discovering what's here. It's also very respectful. 
why do you think you know what you should be experiencing that's different from your lived experience of this moment? Here, this, 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 just this. And then you get to discover all the ways in which you run away or attack or are afraid or something. And then you get to feel the hereness of fear or the hereness of desire or the hereness of ill will or the hereness of restlessness and all these things. So what makes the hindrances hindrances is not that they, not those qualities in and of themselves, but how they hinder attention. So for example, desire in and of itself is not a hindrance. Desire is a hindrance when desire is hindering. So we don't have to get rid of desire to show up here. We just have to develop the mindfulness strong enough to really know clearly here, I'm having desire. That's a very important distinction because if you think the practice is about getting rid of the desire, then you miss the opportunity to really be present for here in a clear and direct way. And it's the hereness, the awareness that can be here, that is the key. It's the awareness that can be here that is the key to opening up this path of vipassana. It's not about changing necessarily how things, what your experience is. So with the hindrances, hindrances are inevitable visitors. They're so, so common that it's best not to take them personally. The personal failing. Like you're the first person on the block who has a desire, you know. <laughs> or the first person who's ever had some kind of negative judgments about someone else. I mean, you know, that's a kind of conceit, right? The, my, my negative judgmental mind is like so terrible, I'm the worst. That's pretty conceited. <laughs> and, um, it, you know, it's bad enough in and itself. Um, but now to take it personally, just this, this, this is what the mind does. The mind has desire, the mind has ill will, the mind gets tired, the mind gets full of doubt. Just what happens from time to time. Some minds seem to specialize in some of them more than others, but you know, that, you know, that's, that's not your business, except your business is to notice it, to know it. Because the hindrances are such common human phenomena, the task for a mindfulness student is not to dismiss them, not to get rid of them quickly, which is often the tendency if only I can get rid of this and be on to the real stuff, the real practice. The task of a mindful student is if a hindrance arises, your task is to patiently, willingly turn towards it and get to know it. And that getting to know it, doing that does two things. It hopefully turns towards it to be here with that. Discover what it's like just to be here in a very simple way without needing it to be any way different and just feel, here is someone having desire. This is what desire is like. And discover what that, that ability to have a here presence, here awareness, just, just to be here and be aware, is so important, so key. So you have an opportunity to try to discover that. The other is we start to learn about what the hindrance is all about. And it's really important to become familiar with the hindrances. In fact, Vipassana students are supposed to become like world-class experts on the hindrances. And the only way you can do that is by studying them, not by getting rid of them quickly. So that's the bad news, is to take the time to get to know them. Don't be in a hurry. It's really useful. Take your time with, what's ha- take your time with what is happening in the present moment. There's no hurry. And it's certainly not a competition to get somewhere fast. Or sometimes I say that vipassana is a really great competitive sport because we all arrive in the present moment at the same time. (laughs) Are you ready? On your mark, get set, go! (laughs) We didn't leave anybody behind. So so after the Buddha says here in the instructions for mindfulness, 
he goes on, the next thing he says, that the meditator um, uh, sets aside greed and distress for the world. That's the first, so after saying here, he says, you put aside greed and distress in the world. When I first encountered that phrase, I was kind of confused by it because I thought that's why I was doing mindfulness. And now I'm being told I have to do that first before I can do mindfulness. The, um, but this is how I understand it. In order to do mindfulness practice, you have to be willing to turn the attention away from aboutness or turn the attention away from the object of your attention, which is what the world is about here in this, this phrase, and instead focus on what the lived experience is. So if I'm thinking, if I'm thinking a lot about the interview I'm going to have with the teacher, which is a great, some people, that's a, for, I found that was a great place for my practice to grow because I had a lot of things come up for me. Some of you, are, I'm sure, as well. It's not, not to feel, feel bad about the issues that come up preparing for an interview, but take them on as part of the practice. Maybe even talk about it with your teacher. But, um, so you don't have to stop, you know, so say you're nervous about your interview. And I'll tell you that the first time I had an interview with a teacher, with my Zen, my Zen teacher, formal interview, I was so nervous, I couldn't speak. And my teacher said, Gil, breathe deeply. So, you know, I know what it can be like. So, um, so, um, so you don't have to stop thinking about the interview, but the interview is an object of attention, object of thought. You turn the attention around 180 degrees and feel the lived experience here of someone who's anxious, someone who's having thoughts about interview. Or if you have desire, there's, uh, say you have sexual fantasy desires, it's fine. You don't have to dismiss that, but you need to understand that the practice is not found in that world of aboutness in those fantasies. The practice is found by turning the attention 180 degrees around or bringing it in close in, bringing it back to the here land, to here, and feeling what it's like, being present for what it's like to be desiring. If you're mesmerized by the object of your, what you're thinking about, the object of your fantasy, you won't feel the lived experience of what it's like to be desiring. If you have ill will, aversion, anger, hostility towards someone or something. I've had hostility towards my Zafu. And, I mean, how could they get so hard? I mean, it's like, after a few days, it feels like concrete. And um, fantasies about what I'm going to do to that Zafu. And um, so again, you don't, have to, you don't have to feel like you're bad about having those angry thoughts. You don't have to judge yourself negatively. Or This is a fine place to be angry. But in order to do the practice, you have to understand the key is not to stay absorbed or caught up in the world of aboutness, the zafu, but rather to turn around or bring yourself in close to feel what it's like to be a person having ill will, to feel the heat, the tension, the tightness, the agitation, and all those things. And, and discover the hereness of that, be present for that, and explore that, what's going on there. So for the, each of these hindrances, hindrances have a, are a lot to do about the world of aboutness. They usually have a lot, usually a fair amount to do with thinking, especially the first two and the last one. Uh, desires usually have an object of desire. And if you're involved in the object, you're involved in the world of aboutness. If you turn back 
and focus on the subject of being the one who has desire, then you're in the practice. You have uh, ill will usually as an object. And so can you turn around and really feel this, the immediacy here of that experience of having ill will? So when we do that, we can discover a, a range of things. We certainly discover how thinking is part of the hindrance. And with thinking, we might discover that there's beliefs connected to it. If, if I get this, then if I have that object of desire f- fulfilled, then I'll be, feel better. If they have potatoes for supper, I'll have it made for the rest of the evening. That's my belief, so I'll start thinking about potatoes. Or uh, there might be... Uh, I, know pe- I know people have told me that they've, they've got involved in some kind of fantasy, very pleasant fantasy, desire fantasy, because they felt, well, it was, a, it was a rough afternoon, I deserve a break. And so they kind of go off into their fantasy, they kind of get a nice little vacation. And um, so, so thinking, so there's beliefs, beliefs, ideas of what we need, we need and don't need come into play. It's interesting to look at that. There is emotions that are connected. It's interesting to explore the range of emotions connected to the hindrances. And in fact, this is where, again, I think that calling the hindrances coverings is interesting because sometimes uh, a hindrance will cover something more deeply. Like sometimes when there's desire, it covers some deeper emptiness or longing or fear. So, for example, the syndrome of going for food when you're lonely or feeling sad, the desire for food for comfort, but the deeper thing is the feeling of loneliness or emptiness that might be there. And the more profound thing to do is to come in close and feel the loneliness or the sadness that might be there, rather than being caught up in the world about what you're desiring. There's energetics in the body. There's all these sensations and feelings and tensions and movement in the body that goes on. It's interesting to watch it, like if you go um, uh, down, to, down the hill for lunch, Imagine some of you's desire kicks in. It's interesting to watch what happens to your body as you're walking down towards lunch. Um, when uh, uh, my teacher in Thailand said, uh, don't do anything that takes you out of your body, I, I discovered a lot of what he meant by that when I went to lunch. And I found that I was a foot in front of my body, you know, heading towards food. The food would, you know, I, wasn't really, I lost my, my, my presence my body as I was projected ahead. Maybe some of you can stay in your body going down the hill. And you can stay in your, in your body standing in line until you pick up your plate and you look down and there's only one piece of tempeh left. My favorite. And that's just so tempting to lose your body. To lean forward. You feel what goes on in your body. It's leaning for this contraction, this tightness, holding your plate a little bit tighter, hoping, praying that they hate tempeh so they save it for you. What I'm trying to point out is the idea of studying what the phenomena of desiring is like. Explore it. Go into it. Be present for it. The more you explore it and are present for it, chances are the more free you'll become of it. Not that it goes away, but you won't be a slave to it. You won't be pushed around by it. With time, the mindfulness gets stronger and you become independent of these forces. And then they're no longer hindering. There's just desire. But desire doesn't push you around. Desires can be a dime a dozen and uh, you don't have to be pulled into them. It's possible to be aware of the authority that these hindrances have, like desire, ill will, Doubts also. We invest so much authority into it, but the idea that, we, that it's truthful is not questioned. If I have a desire, it must be true. Thank you. And off I, off, off I go, running off after my desire. Why is it true? Can you, can it, it's possible to feel the granting of authority, of power to these things, and it's possible to choose not to grant it. One of the interesting things to study is how we identify with these things. We use it in some way or other to define who I am. 
And that's another way we invest or we uh, power authority into these things by somehow saying, using this to find myself positively or negatively, taking it personally in some way. Oh, you know, this is terrible that I should be having desires or fantasies like this. I'm really embarrassing. I, it's, you know, I'm a bad person or, you know, I'm a lousy person for being so judgmental. To have those kind of judgments be added on top grants a power, gives power to those thoughts that don't have to be there. <clears throat> if you do grant power, if you do take it personally, that's okay too. Here, here, here's a person who's taking it so personally. This is what it's like to take it personally. Isn't this interesting? What's this feel like? What's this objective experience of taking something personally? You're here and present at that point. The desi- desires, the first two hindrances, desire and aversion, desire and ill will, are very powerful forces in our lives, for and against, wanting and not wanting, longing. Can be deep-seated longing for something that brings us into the world of aboutness as opposed to being here. Some people depend on desire and aversion to be energized. I call it desire and aversion, the caffeine of the soul. And some people really, just like some people need to go to horror movies to get energized, some people keep themselves going by having all those desires, wanting this and that, and not wanting that, and criticizing. And, and they build up tremendous, uh, uh, strong senses of self, self-definition through desire and what we want and don't want, and who I share my desires with, who I share my aversions with, who I don't, and all that. It's very, can be a very complicated world. As that world of desiring and ill will quiets down to some degree, some people find they go through a difficult transition, just as you would uh, if you stop drinking caffeine, there might be go through withdrawals, uh, maybe, a, maybe a couple of days where things are kind of rough and headachey or kind of uncomfortable. Some people start feeling that discomfort, and they and they take refuge back into desire and ill will. In fact, sometimes desire and ill will is a strategy to try to avoid feeling discomfort, or it functions that way. And so part of this nobility of practicing here, of showing up, is the willingness to go through those transitions, or willing to go through the withdrawals that might be here. And so one of the things I want to emphasize this evening is that the fact that you might judge your meditation practice as going, getting worse might not be true. Sometimes things have to get, as things get un, 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 unwind or... We let go of certain things, it's habits of mind. We go through these transition periods, which can be a little bit tough to go through. And it takes a lot of patience then to wait, wait it out. But if you take, if you come back and really deeply trust that the most powerful and beneficial thing you can do is say here, just here. Here's a person who's feeling uncomfortable, who's restless. Here's a person who's feeling tired. So one of the most common, uh, one, one common symptom when desire and ill will is no longer keeping the mind going and spinning is it crashes, the mind crashes, and so sloth and torpor can set in, tiredness, lethargy. Sometimes lethargy or sloth and torpor arises because what gave us meaning, kept us charged and gave meaning, no longer is giving us meaning. But we have nothing to replace it with for a while. And so we just kind of feel kind of deflated. Or we feel discouraged. Or we feel disappointed. We have strong desire and the desire is not fulfilled. And one result of that is sometimes things drop. Sloth and torpor as a hindrance does not mean that there is not enough, doesn't mean a lack of available energy to practice. It means we haven't tapped into the available energy that's there. I call it uh, sloth and torpor like this, uh, my seer's mind. 
because when I was a little kid, my mom would take me to Sears to buy clothes, and I hated it. I would just, I would get so tired, so tired. Oh, I, it was so tiring to be in those clothing stores and the smell, and oh, it was, I just, I didn't have the energy, and oh, please. And then we would leave Sears, my mom would say, you know, should we, get, should we buy some ice cream? <laughs> Boy, did I have energy. It wasn't very far away. So, resistance can take the form of sloth and torpor. Disappointment. Fear can kind of creep in there also sometimes. But so again, so sloth and torpor happens, not personal. Lethargy, resistance. It's hard with sloth and torpor, but to turn around, 180 degree turn, and then, okay, the task here is to say here. I I get to study sloth. Great. I get to study tiredness. This is what it's like. And to really feel it and explore it, you might discover that also covers something. Don't go digging so much, but if you stay really present, you might see, oh, it's more than I realized here in this tired state. Or there might be restlessness. Sometimes we don't get what we want. Our desires are not fulfilled or, or we're, you know, just... We're struggling with ill will or we have aversion to something and what we have aversion to, aversion to comes anyway. Sometimes the mind, the mind or the body starts getting really restless and agitated and worked up. Sometimes on retreats we get worked up and a lot of nervous or agitated energy can course through our system for no discernible reason whatsoever. Sometimes the mind then gets into the about world. I wonder what this is about. And we start analyzing and trying to guess and figure out. There's no need to analyze and guess and go back into the about world. What we do here is simpler than the world of aboutness can ever be about. It's just here. Oh, here is restlessness. This is what it's like. And you might feel as you're here, this is what it's like to feel the voices and the ideas, the beliefs in your mind that says, this is not good enough. This is terrible. I should be someplace else. And all those movements of mind to run away or to do something should be studied, should be felt. To be seen clearly for what they are so that the mind of awareness, the mind that can be here and present and know, becomes stronger than the thoughts than the beliefs, what should happen, shouldn't happen. We keep coming back in this practice, we keep coming back over and over and over again to hear, this is what it's like, to hear, so the knowing, the awareness of what's here can get stronger and stronger. Things can change as we practice, we can get more concentrated, more still, a variety of things can happen. But the key thing that can happen is this freedom that comes when the awareness The mindfulness gets strong enough that the mindfulness is independent of what's being experienced, where the mindfulness is not pushed around. It's like this ballast or this strength or this force or this power of mindfulness that can handle anything. It's like mindfulness becomes like really big, lots of room in mindfulness, and whatever arises can arise. One analogy I like is um, for this... It's not so much a matter of having things, again, be different, but making more room for whatever the experience we're having. So the analogy is, if you go into a small, teeny little elevator, and it's you and three really, really large, um, I don't know what, messy, sloppy, smelly, people with ketchup all the way down their shirts, and, <clears throat> you know, and breath and, you know, and everything. And you have to get in the middle of these people and just squeezed in, and it feels kind of claustrophobic. But then, 
you, 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 the elevators open up and you all spread out into this huge, beautiful cathedral-like room, just vast room. It's just you and those three people spread out all over the room. And when you're spread out and have all that space, then it's easy to love humanity. <laughs> so, so part of the function of mindfulness is to create more room. Let the mindfulness get stronger. Be present for here. Relax. Allow it to be. To make room is a very different movement than to change what's there. Make room for desire. Make room for ill will. Not to indulge in it. Not to get swept away in the world of aboutness. But to learn to wake up. To be here. And recognize, oh here, this is what desire is like. I've heard about that. I heard it might happen. Ill will, restlessness, sloth and torpor. The strongest hindrance is doubt. And the reason we say it's the strongest is that, um, in terms of practice, is the other hindrances can be about all kinds of stuff. But the hindrance of doubt has specifically doubt connected to the practice itself. So, doubt about this practice, doubt about this is the right time to be practicing, doubt about your ability to do the practice, doubt about the teachers, doubt about the teachings, doubt about the place, doubt about your shawl, doubt about the zafu. You know, there's a lot of things you can doubt that if your doubt is strong enough, it interferes, powerful interference with just the continuity of being mindful and being present. We get pulled, doubt is a, is a powerful magnet into the world of aboutness. And it has a lot of authority in it. Uh, we invest a lot of meaning, a lot of, in it. It must be true. And then, you know, I knew one person, one, one of the Spirit Rock teachers, I won't mention by name, who had a huge doubt attack on a retreat and didn't recognize it until after she had bought a ticket, airplane ticket, and gotten on the plane to return to her home state. That was kind of slow. <laughs> you know, if she had just said here sooner, <laughs> you know, she wouldn't have saved the expense of getting a special ticket. But doubt can be very powerful. One of the very, I think, really interesting movements to do with doubt is um, if you really in the throes of really good, juicy doubt that really has you by your neck, and um, is to just uh, do it one better and uh, doubt the doubt. If you're going you're to be doubting anyway, <laughs> just do it better. <laughs> be more thorough <laughs> and doubt the doubt. But if you can't do that, then here, this is what it's like to have doubt. And you, don't, you, do, you do this not just for yourself. You do this as a gift to others as well. These are universal forces. And the more that you can become familiar and know what this is about, know how it affects your body, how it affects your emotions, how it affects your mind, your thoughts, and everything, the more you can be familiar with it, the more you're helping other people understand it. You're modeling a different way of living. You're, someday you might be able to share what you've learned, your wisdom, because you've studied it so well. We don't do this just for ourselves. So you have a good bout of doubt, even if it's true. It's a great, it's not just about, for me, this is a chance to study. Let me deal about the truthness and the falseness later. Maybe, maybe I'll bring it up with a teacher in an interview to check it out. But for the time being, I'm going to be present here and get to know it. As opposed to being pulled into the world of aboutness, with the thoughts of what I'm doubting, the thing I'm doubting about. Donald yesterday talked about coming back into our body, being in our body. 
And that's also what I'm trying to talk about here today. The body is the fantastic friend, as Ananda said, for ourselves, for our practice. The body is a tremendous reservoir of wisdom, it's a tremendous reservoir of process, of trust, of support, of refuge. And when you have the hindrances come up and do this 180 degree turn back to the subjective experience, to what it's really like, you come back and really feel it in your body. Let the body hold it. Not just to feel it in the body, but let the body hold it. Let the body kind of be the container of it, be the support of it. Let the, let the, room, the room for these things be greater room in the body. So where do you feel that desire for the anger? Do you feel the anger in the pit of your stomach? Then feel it there. Let the stomach hold it. If the stomach's not big enough, let the whole torso hold it. If the torso is not big enough for it, let the whole body behold the anger. If your body is not big enough for all your anger, it's okay. Then make it spirit rock hold it. If spirit rock's not big enough to hold your anger, let it be the state of California. And if that's not big enough, just keep going out. And to you have, just have a lot of space to just let it be and feel and not kind of, kind of caught in a, in a struggling match with it, wrestling match with it. Some of you might not care for my practice of saying here. More traditionally in our, in our scene, we wouldn't use mental noting. We would say, oh, desire. Name it, desire, desire. For the same purpose, to really come back and feel it, to recognize it, to let the mindfulness become stronger. sloth, tired lethargy, to name it as a way of coming back, as a way of nudging yourself, encouraging yourself, here, come close, be intimate with the experience. You're not intimate if you're thinking about it. You're intimate if you're in your body feeling it here. Relax in the body, soften here. So some of you might find it very useful to use the mental noting when these, when these hindrances come up and to name it. There's something very powerful about noting. The ancient fairy tales or stories where they, if you name the dragon, the dragon loses its power. It works also sometimes with the hindrances. And the, the power that I, one of the power that these dragons or the hindrances have is the power of identification with them, defining ourselves by them. And there's something, there can be something about the naming where you kind of, in a sense, kind of step away from it or step away from identifying with it and just recognize, oh, here, doubt, doubt. So some of you might find it helpful to do the noting. So to conclude, <clears throat> For those of you who uh, you know, started, especially in March, we mostly been emphasizing the breath as a, as a grounding, as a way of beginning the practice here, getting centered and stabilized. It's very, very effective to be in the breath. And we'll expand the instructions to include the body and emotions and such things. But one of the key principles of mindfulness is that is to turn into whatever is happening. Not to dismiss anything or push something away or say, this should, or say this shouldn't be happening. But whatever the difficulties are, it can be very, it can be very effective to bring it into the practice, to include it, to turn towards it in a sense. And one of the ways to do that is through this 180 degree turn away from thinking about it to sensing it, feeling it, 
making room for it here in the body, and just being here with this, discovering what it is, discovering what goes on, discovering what your reactions and relationship to it is here. Whatever difficulties you are, whatever difficulties you're having, those difficulties become the practice. And once they become the practice, they're not difficulties to your practice anymore. They are the practice. And that's been one of the very powerful lessons I learned through Vipassana, was the lesson of including everything as the practice, as opposed to thinking practice is one thing and my difficulties are an unfortunate other thing that shouldn't be happening. Who knows why anything is supposed to be happening? It's enough for me that it's happening. And then to use that for the practice of mindfulness, training in mindfulness, development of mindfulness, training in being here, discovering this amazing jewel, this amazing treasure that's only discovered in the living experience of here. So um, let's take a few moments to be here for you to turn that 180 degrees around from the world of aboutness, about the talk, and to feel, sense, experience the hereness of yourself now. Inhabit the land of here. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.